I'm Ray Rogers. You're listening to Fix This, a podcast exploring tech ideas and solutions to some of today's largest challenges. 2021 is a big year for us here at Amazon Web Services because we're celebrating our 15-year anniversary. In those years, we've evolved as a company alongside our customers. And while there's so much to look back on, there's even more to look forward to. I sat down with Dr. Werner Vogels, Chief Technology Officer of Amazon and one of the world's leading thinkers on distributed systems technologies. He's been at Amazon since 2004. Take a listen as we dive into what inspires him from our customers' work, his show, Now Go Build, and what he sees in the next generation of entrepreneurs, the challenges that they're tackling head-on, and the solutions they're building. As the CTO of Amazon, how has your role changed over the years? Well, let's first to start with actually how the technology changed over time. You know, so there's lots of anecdotes about why we started AWS, and there's, there's many different aspects that came together in those early days. And lots of new businesses were being created, and they were really innovative, and they were really moving fast, and they were great. There was comparison shopping, all sorts of things going on. But as soon as one of those companies became successful, they all started to stutter. Because they all needed to get millions of investment to start buying hardware, to hire IT people, all these kind of things. And we looked at that and thought, how wait? But we solved that for ourselves. Now, because we'd gone through similar phases internally, where we had many small teams that all needed to run at their own pace, all needed to manage their own databases. And so we, we fixed many of these things that we'd done for ourselves internally. We thought that would be great for companies on the outside as well. And when we launched S3, that was really, we called it storage for the internet. Yeah, the idea was really that uh, sort of companies that were interested, just like Amazon, in reaching what we would call internet scale, that they could make use of these services. But, of course, there's a lot of happened in the past 15 years. Yeah, and, and if you look at sort of my role in all of that in the early days, when I was hired by Amazon, it was really more like a sort of big thinker. When, when I was hired, you know, Amazon, Amazon engineers already knew how to scale, that they knew that from a sort of practical point of view. But then when you become a technology provider, like we do with AWS, the role of a CTO changes. It becomes that of what I would call an external facing technologist. We had some really innovative concepts where we started off here because nobody had done this before. Nobody had provided IT services over the internet Next to all the beautiful and great technologies that we've built, one of the things that I'm most proud of is actually completely ripping apart the old-style IT procurement systems. Many of the IT providers and whether those were, were so database vendors or, or server vendors, they all had sort of these extortionist techniques where you, know, you had to pay for five or ten years ahead for stuff that you actually didn't know whether you were going to use. And when you had written the check, nobody cared anymore. So when we started building AWS, it's not just that we started thinking about the technology and how great the technology would be and what we could do for our customers, but that the most important thing we could do for our customers is taking a, a leave of being the Earth's most customer-centric company and being the Earth's most customer-centric IT provider. And for that, we needed to change the economic model. Yeah, so instead of paying up front, customers only would have to pay after they've used services and that they would be able to access these services, that they would be able to walk away without actually having any contractual obligations to stay with us. And that actually, that, you know, although the technology is great, 
the economic model, I think, put the complete IT world on its head. Probably my most important job is actually understanding what are still the stumbling blocks that our customers are dealing with. It's also still what are the kind of things that they're doing that they actually shouldn't be doing. That some software as a service provider or or AWS should do for them. And really understanding what are the kind of things that we can do for our customers to really make sure they only have to focus on the kind of things that they really want to do. On that note, so much of your time is spent with customers trying to understand their stumbling blocks, what they're trying to solve for, and how they can run smoother. And as our business changes, like you just described, so do our customers. Why is the cloud a key ingredient to building these creative, scalable solutions that can solve some of the world's most pressing issues? What's most important for our customers these days is is not have to worry about the things that don't matter to your business. Uh, A long time ago, Nick Carr wrote a, um, I think, a Harvard Business Review article called IT Doesn't Matter. He didn't mean that IT didn't matter. He meant that if everybody has to do the same IT, is no longer a competitive differentiator. You're just wasting money on things that everybody else has to do as well. Suddenly, AWS, IT definitely is no longer a differentiator. Yet, whether you're a small startup or really the largest enterprise, now suddenly you have access to exactly the same IT capabilities. So where does competition come from then is how well you serve your customers. How good are you in translating what your customers want in building new products? They can do this much faster. They can experiment. They can get things in the hands of their customers much faster and get much faster feedback loops than they could do before. So in Italy last year, they were the first European country to go into lockdown. People could only leave their house to go to the supermarket. But it meant that there were long lines in front of supermarkets because we really had to keep distance and things like that. So here are four young students that decide to build a crowdsourcing app in which you can identify how long the line is in front of your supermarket. These kids had never used AWS before, but they needed to build an app that was not only highly available, but also secure and privacy sensitive. They did this in two days. These kids, within a week, had more than had millions of users because everybody wanted to know where the shortest line was to the supermarket. Yeah, and so we've seen this across the world uh, in the past year where companies, whether they're large enterprises or, or just groups of friends, are, are building things really, really fast on AWS, getting it in the hands of their customers and then seeing whether this actually rings a bell with them. It's almost a democratization of IT in a sense, right? Like having access to the right tools to build the right things and doing it very quickly. Absolutely. And in that sense, in the past, access to IT, high-level IT, was only the, the, the premise of, uh, of very large enterprises. And now it has everybody has access to it. To cause great change, you don't have to be the largest enterprise. You can be a researcher or a group of individuals using AWS to solve for some of these huge challenges. And you've seen that firsthand. Before the pandemic, you used to travel around the world to see customers. Yeah, I was really fortunate to be able to travel the world and see all of these startups around the world or young businesses around the world that are trying to solve really hard problems. Or, or even, even enterprises. Take In Brazil, take Natura. 
They have acquired the Body Shop, which is a very well-known high street store, as well as quite a number of other companies where they are all trying to make a change in demonstrating to their customers that the products that they're buying are naturally safe. And they make use of AWS and they make use of blockchain on AWS to make sure that everybody can understand where the product comes from and what changes it has undergone before it gets in the hands of the consumer. Yeah, that's a great example of how AWS can help our customers remain customer obsessed in the products and services they provide to their own customers. So now I want to pivot and dive into your series, Now Go Build, which has brought you to many places from Amsterdam to Singapore to Tokyo and so many more. How did the show get started? In my travels around the world, I was struck by something in the US and and Western Europe. We have a tremendous focus on what we call unicorns, basically companies that grow really, really, really fast and become really big. And they're really focused on growing really big. And when I travel around the world, and whether it's Africa or South America or Southeast Asia, one of the things I've noticed is that many of those startups there are not looking to become the next unicorn. Many of them are really looking to build a sustainable business and have impact on the world around them. And so these are this is a very different mindset. You know, you build a company to run this company for the coming 20 or 30 years and have a good living because of it. Not because you suddenly grow through advertisement to another billion customers and then sell your company. These are entrepreneurs that are really focused on doing the right thing. And there was a particular section of that entrepreneurs that really struck me. They were targeting not the easy problems, not, not how to write spam filters or things like that. They were really focusing on the hardest problems in the world. And and it started off with um, a company called Hara in Indonesia. The problem that they tried to solve was that uh, smallholder farmers in Indonesia do not have an identity. They don't exist in any of the official systems. And as such, they cannot get loans at banks or things like, like that. And so they have to go to loan charts on their loans to just get seed so they can seed their, their next crop. And so what Hara does on one hand is give them an identity and on the other hand also have people sort of measure the yield of their crop. So it makes it very easy for them to go to banks and actually get loans. Instead of paying 50%, they now pay 2 or 3%. And the banks are happy to do that because all these farmers pay their loans back. And so this is a complete shift in attitude, trying to solve a very hard problem. By looking at these kind of companies, I started to realize that there is a whole group of companies that are being built on AWS that are not necessarily looking for becoming the next billionaire. They're looking at solving really hard problems, and they would be happy just to solve the problem instead of buying the next yacht. This insistence and focus on social impact beyond just hypergrowth, yeah? Oh, absolutely. And and really, I think each and every one of the companies that we've interviewed for Namco Build has a singular focus. When we went to Bergen in Norway, these guys were not into growing salmon. Their goal is to solve the lack of protein in the world's food supply. Yeah, because they realize that you know we cannot grow cows fast enough to just support more billions and billions of people coming. And so fish is the most uh, efficient way of growing new protein. Now, one kilo of fish food results in one kilo of fish. 
Well, that's an extremely efficient way. However, if you have 200,000 salmon in a small uh, pond in, uh, in one of the uh, fjords in Norway, you need to keep track of them. You need to know how they grow. You need to make use of machine learning. They're not trying to solve the problem of how to grow many salmon. They try to solve the problem of how can society in the future have sufficient food and especially protein. So there's a longer term view that each of these companies are taking. And I think in that sense, they're quite well aligned with AWS and Amazon because this is how we look at the world as well. Mm -hmm. Look at the world in the long term not necessarily in the short term. These entrepreneurs and organizations are focused on solving a challenge that is particular to where they are located, but they're globally resonant challenges and solutions that they're building. But it looks to me that um, younger businesses, sort of whether it's Southeast Asia or Asia itself, for example, are way more focused on harder problems. And, and some of these are, are really interesting. So take Svendate in, in India. They were concerned about two things. One of them, the goal of their company is on one hand to take old Indian art and put it on, let's say, things that millennials like, and whether that's your handbag or your, your laptop uh, case or, or things like that, where really they sort of revive old Indian art to have a sustainable future. And, and not only that, it's also creating complete communities that suddenly can live off this to make sure that most of these people that are actually working on these arts are women. Yeah, the enablement of women to be self-sustainable in, in India is a, is a big, big deal. You've touched on this difference of mindset, this shift from unicorns that are growing at an amazing pace to taking on big societal challenges. Is there anything else that stands out to you or that you find especially inspiring from all of these different stories? I think what stands out is that there is a, a group of entrepreneurs out there that they, who, can, who believe that they can build a sustainable, good business for themselves while doing good. Yeah, and so it isn't that sort of doing good for the world means you have to lose money. So you actually can, if you think about it, you can start building a really good sustainable business. One of the first ones that I encountered was actually indeed in India, where this company was actually training lots of unemployed Indians into relatively easy, let's say, tech technology jobs. But these people were not paying them for them. The companies were paying them. So this company actually was really successful in, on one hand, solving a needs for the bigger companies in training these people and these people will get jobs so everybody was happy the company is happy the, the people that are being trained are happy and you've got this guy in the middle that actually is actually making a, a decent living because of it but their focus is not on the finance of the company they need to do that to have a healthy living but to focus in solving bigger problems one of the Now Go Build episodes was in Berlin. So Germany uh, agreed to, uh, to accept, I think, two, two million refugees in the early days out of, out of the Middle East. And so what we need to do is actually retrain them in Germany just by itself. There's 80,000 uh, open IT positions. And so not all of these require a four-year uh, university degree. The school that we interviewed actually works on helping refugees on one hand 
becoming uh, proficient in German together with a company called Babel and also train them in sort of web design, in Python, in sort of the basic technologies that most of the companies actually can use immediately. It sounds like something that has really stuck with you from filming all of these episodes and meeting different builders from around the world is that individual success does not have to be at the expense of community success and progress. And it seems almost, in fact, that these two things are so intertwined that we can and should fundamentally rethink how we view success from the short term to the long term. Yeah, and I think an important part there is that, I mean, how does how big does your boat need to be? A number of years ago, the, the guys at Basecamp uh, actually really started writing these books uh, about, you know, if you would just charge your customers $10 a month for a service to charge, it's not expensive. So how many, how many customers do you need to actually have a good living? And you don't need millions of customers. You just need to build a really good product that people are willing to pay for. And so it's not just a, a matter of so how this works in, in, in these sort of uh, Southeast Asian countries where people try to solve really big problems. It goes for other companies as well. You can build a sustainable business without having to rely on advertisement or selling your customers' data, but really by building a good product and scaling that in a very effective way on top of AWS. Is there anything else you're hoping the audience takes away from each episode? That this is just the top of the iceberg. I'm extremely, uh, let's say, positive and, and, and optimistic about entrepreneurs who, on one hand, sort of really looking at how can we help other companies become more sustainable and actually have a business in that. But where every company starts to think about, how wait, how can I reduce my energy consumption by 20 or 30%? And these kind of things are, are, are crucial to the future world. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm very optimistic that we have a, a next generation of entrepreneurs coming. And I've already seen them around the world that are really going to change the way that we live. You're touching on two different sides of sustainability. On the one hand, building a sustainable business that can last and provide a good life for entrepreneurs and improve the community as a whole. And on the other hand, viewing sustainability as in making the world a more sustainable place and tackling climate change. That's actually a topic that we've covered frequently here on Fix This with many of our customers and guests. And it's a challenge that unites all of us because it cuts across every aspect of society. So what role do you think the cloud will play in solving this multifaceted existential challenge? Um, so so there's, there's many different aspects to this, of course, when we interact with our customers. On one hand, there are the things that AWS can do. Now, become more efficient, reduce energy usage, make sure that the placement of compute versus computation is as, as maximized as possible. You have to, first of all, compare it to the old world. Now, a, a typical enterprise data center has a utilization of 10, 12% or something like that. Now, that means basically that 80% of your computation goes unused. Now, 80% of your energy goes out of the window. 
In AWS, we have a, uh, an ability to maximize the use of our IT resources. Now, and, and whether that is through different constructs, such as, for example, the, the spot market, which allows us to sell excess capacity that we have at a much lower reduced price, as such increasing the utilization of all of our resources. And then do innovation in the data center itself, for example, how to route power through the data center. Do you need a centralized UPS or does each rack need to have a UPS? Do we continue to need to do this conversion from AC to DC? And all this innovation, we can do that. And in general, we also actually then use those innovations and reducing cost actually as a cost benefit to our customers as well. Next to that, of course, we need to make sure that the energy that comes into our data centers is as green as possible. I think we are the largest uh, buyer of renewable energy in the world, but there's many more small pieces. For example, the Graviton 2 processor that we've built ourselves is so much more efficient in terms of performance per watt than any other processor that we ever built. And so we have many, many different activities going underway, whether it's about cooling or location or, you know, investing in new wind farms and solar farms that we need to make sure that sort of whatever we provide to our customers is as sustainable as possible. And we will continue to innovate in that space. But there's a second part to this as well, and that's one that I'm very much interested in, and it's not completely fleshed out yet is how can we help our customers make better decisions about whether the programming style or whether the, um, the kind of resources that they're using is actually in line with what they would like to achieve in terms of sustainability. Uh, for example, you can imagine that if you put, and this is a simple example, if you put less high quality images on your web page, it takes less energy to serve them. So what's the trade-off there? You know, are we continue to go into richer and broader media, or are we willing to take a trade-off there in sort of providing less high-quality media at a better sustainability point? Yeah, or imagine you can sort of reduce your web page latency from 1.2 to 1.7 and use let's say 70% of the resources that you otherwise will be using. So there's there's a new sort of era coming in which we are becoming aware of what sustainability means and how we can influence that ourselves, not just us as providers, but our customers as well. What are the kind of tools we need to have control over this? And I think that's that's one of the best things we can be working on at the moment. You mentioned that you feel very optimistic about this new era of creativity from entrepreneurs, how they're thinking differently, they're problem solving differently, and they're thinking long term. In closing, what are you looking forward to and what is really helping to propel that positive mindset and keep your spirits high? I, I can slowly but surely see a change in mindset at um at, at companies that what we've seen in the past year and a half is that, uh, first of all, you know, digital services have become more crucial than they ever were. But you have to realize that if everybody becomes dependent on digital services, we need to serve people that are not comfortable with digital technologies. And whether there are elderly people or younger people or people that have an aversion against it, if digital is the only way to access services, we need to make sure that we can. And so whether that means integrating more of Alexa into things that people can use for us, uh, whether that means sort of addressing 
your customers upfront in sort of being simpler and easier to use instead of all this complexity? Or, you know, realizing that, for example, if you're in the financial services industry, that many of your customers are very anxious at the moment. They have no idea about their financial future. They have no idea about how things are going to evolve or whether it's their healthcare or whether it's finances or whatever. I see a new generation of developers and, and architects arriving that are actually willing to take these things into account. How do you approach your customers you know, when they are anxious or, or, or stressed out? It's very different from a, a happy-go-lucky kind of interface that we're used to. Yeah, so what I'm very, very positive about is that people start to move from a business-centric design to a human-centric design of their applications. And I think at AWS, you know, we have so much experience with companies around the world doing this that we're happy to help anybody else that actually wants to change, make, make this change and put sort of customer-centric instead of business-centric into their design and applications. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Werner Vogels, and to join him on a worldwide journey to uncover the startups solving the toughest problems our planet faces, tune in to Now Go Build. You can stream all videos as they are released on Prime Video, and you can watch them on demand at aws.amazon.com slash startups slash now go build. If you like today's show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. We'll be here on the next one.